Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Fellow patrons, fellow countrymen. <laughs> And everyone who listens to the Conversations That Matter podcast, uh, good afternoon. I hope you're having a wonderful afternoon wherever you are. This is an unannounced podcast. I announced it about half an hour ago, and I'm starting it a few minutes early, uh, which maybe is different for me. Some of you are used to me starting fashionably three to five minutes, maybe sometimes 10 minutes, depending, uh, uh, after the the announcement date to make sure everyone is here. But uh but I'm on a little bit of a time crunch, so um, I'm starting now, and uh, we have lots to talk about. We're going to have fun today uh, on the podcast, I hope, I think. Um, for those who are going to see me in New Mexico uh, this weekend, I am very much looking forward to it, and I need to let you know about that before I say anything else, because I'm the worst at telling people about where I'm going to be. But I am going to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the Reclaim Conference, and that's March 2nd. Uh, to third, you can go to johnharrispodcast.com if you click the link. It's working now. Uh, Reclaim Conference at Redemption Hill Church, and there's more info there. I'm going to be talking about uh, biblical definitions, uh, really just how the social justice movement has corrupted definitions of certain words and how we should go about navigating that. Uh, so that's going to be on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, I'm going to be talking a bit about. Uh, I think Gideon. Uh, I, I've been uh, looking into that, and I, I love Gideon. He's one of my favorite Bible characters. I have a number. It's hard to pick, but he is one of my favorites. And uh, uh, anyway, so we, we may talk about that. Uh, be, and, and the reason, really, just briefly for everyone, the reason I'm thinking about that is, um, you know, I, I've spoken on Gideon at least once before uh, because I know of no other encourage, better encouraging story to help people gain courage there's many in scripture but for some reason Gideon to me because he, he's he's kind of like such a mess up in some ways like he just he lacks faith he's hiding uh and and then he goes in against all odds and he wins and um I don't think God's changed I think he's the same God today that he was back then so uh it'll be encouraging and looking forward to seeing you all in New Mexico uh this uh, weekend. And um, one other thing before we get into the myriad of topics, I want to just play, this is a one minute uh, spot uh, for our sponsor, Equipping the Persecuted. So um, th this is a very important issue in my estimation, helping Christians in Nigeria who are being persecuted by Muslims. So, uh, so, so here's a spot. And if you're watching, you'll, you'll see some of the pictures and stuff. Know that more Christians are persecuted for their faith in Nigeria than in every other country of the world combined? 90% of all Christians killed for their faith are Nigerians because Islamic jihadists are destroying Christian villages, homes, and churches. But there is someone doing something. A team of American and Nigerian Christians called Equipping the Persecuted head toward the chaos while smoke is still rising. They pull lives out of the wreckage and help them rebuild. They provide emergency medical care, support for widows and orphans, security training, and meet other needs so Christians can rebuild their lives. This year, they are building a hospital and a women's rehab clinic to help victims, two new schools to educate over 800 displaced children, and they continue to equip villages with the security training and infrastructure they need to protect themselves in the future. Consider being part of the effort to support brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. Go to equippingthepersecuted.org. 
All right. So equippingthepersecute.org, if you're interested in finding out more uh, about that. Uh, I don't know exactly where we should dive in first, because there's a bunch of different topics. Uh, I think we'll start with social justice stuff. There's actually a few things, I guess, related to social justice, but the most overtly social justice stuff first, if that's okay. A few people sent me this clip. Uh, this is from uh, Charlie Dates. Uh, he was a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention up until I think it was like two years ago. He left in a huff uh, because the SBC is you know, not taking racial justice seriously in his mind. And uh, I mean, this is after everything the SBC does every year to, to bend over backwards in their resolutions and their seminaries, uh, which have been pumping in social justice stuff. It's still not enough uh, for someone like Charlie Dates. Um, and, and we've talked about him on the podcast before. I think we've played some of his clips. I know he spoke at Southeastern and he showed up in one of uh, those uh, montages that, that we talked about on the podcast. Um, he's a guy, though, that thinks that there's like, like he sees a civil rights movement and what Martin Luther King Jr. was doing as intrinsically tied to the gospel. And I don't know exactly where he lands on like, what is the gospel to him? I'm not exactly sure. I know he's he says things that sound like their liberation theology, but here's what he had to say just a few days ago. It was this week at uh, at Moody. I said, I think did I say Wheaton before it was at Moody at Moody Bible uh, Institute. And, you know, Moody's been known, at least traditionally, <laughs> as a fairly conservative evangelical institution. And, you know, I, I looked at I watched the whole chapel and there was a number of things in there that I picked out that I was like, okay, this is definitely, they're definitely swallowing some of the woke stuff. But, um, but this is just one clip I want to share with you from the sermon. It's nothing earth shattering. You've heard this kind of stuff before, but it's still happening at places like Moody. So uh, Charlie Dates at Moody in chapel talking to students. Some of them will be prospective pastors. Here we go. You cannot separate the holiness of God from the demand of the justice of God for the oppressed. In other words, you cannot have just this high, holy, lofty God and not be concerned about low, marginalized people. We have all kinds of organizations today that want to protest, but they don't know how to pray. And yet we got people who know how to pray, but they refuse to protest. I just want to say one thing. This is a serious charge, whether you realize it or not. This is Charlie Dates saying that uh, there's a big problem in the evangelical landscape with presumably pastors, but leaders in, in, in evangelicalism and Christianity who are making a separation between the character of God, his holiness, and then uh, working towards lifting oppression. And so he, he's saying if you fail to lift oppression and fight just against injustice in this kind of thing in his scheme, whatever that means. He, the civil rights stuff definitely plays into it, but there's definitely, uh, uh, if you track with Charlie Dates and what he said over the years, there's definitely a CRT adjacent thing going on there as well. But, uh, but if you don't, if you fail to protest, okay, against racial injustice and that kind of thing, you actually don't really think that God must be that holy. I mean, that's a serious accusation. And so I just don't want people to miss that. It's it's not something casual. He's saying like, you've missed the boat on who God is. You, it, It's like coming very close to saying you're an idolater. Like you don't actually have the right God, perhaps. Like you don't, you don't know him. You don't take him seriously because, uh, because you're failing in, in whatever social justice stuff. So, all right, let's uh, keep going here. And I know this, I, I, I'm trying now to work with pastors in our city across the racial line to prepare us for this election, to train poll workers and to get people ready so that we can actually serve the marginalized. So nobody will be able to stand up and say the election was stolen. No, we need Christians in the place where these things are happening. And I'm struck by the reticence and the hesitance of people who have never suffered from oppression, who know how to pray, but they don't want to step into the place to help folk get liberated. And what I okay, so we've, get, we've gotten a window into what this liberation now looks like, like a concrete example. It's him working with pastors to do what? To get people registered to vote. And 
so so that no one will be able to say that the election was stolen. Um, I, I guess that's so I, I don't know exactly. I mean, he's not saying what candidate, but I know uh, he might still be on the board. He was on the board. I know he was for the and campaign, which means he's more on the left. Um, I'm assuming this means that I guess the Democrats are going to win and, and it's there's not going to be a question. It's going to be so large that no one's going to be thinking that there could have been uh, a stolen election here because the Christians are motivated on the left side of the spectrum. I don't know how else to make sense of it, but voting, getting people registered to vote, that's that's <laughs> that's your justice thing. So you you must not think God is that holy if you're not involved in doing that. And you must speak from a place of privilege without having experienced injustice if you're not involved in doing that. If you just pray, but you're not actively being an activist, essentially. Like, you, you have to do this thing. And I've said this many times about social justice uh, warriors. They, uh, especially in the church, they will use the gospel, they will use your theology against you to try to motivate you to take part in left-wing activity. And with the assumption that if you don't, then you're lacking somehow in your Christian Christian witness, your Christian identity, maybe even the gospel itself. And so Charlie Dates is, is doing something that we've seen many times here. I'm saying to you, listening to me here today, especially you, my vanilla brothers and sisters, when you come of age and you get in the ministry, you cannot leave your chocolate and brown brothers and sisters to the margins fighting for the oppressed by themselves. But you gotta do it. So, so he's singling out the white people now. He's saying, if you're white and you're not registering people to vote, I mean, that's the concrete example he gave. You're not out there doing this political thing. You're not making sure that the election is not even a close call, that people don't have to question it because you got involved in fighting against injustice. If, if you're a white person and you're not doing that, then... I mean, what are we supposed to assume? Well, you're, I guess you're kind of a, you're a racist, I guess. You're, you're someone who doesn't really care about your brothers and sisters. This is how you prove that you care. It's so manipulative. Like if you, you, you can't just pray, you can't do something, you, you, you can't, uh, you know, do something that you consider to be before God, a generous thing, a nice thing, a Christian thing. You got to fit into this pattern that Charlie Dates is laying down, this political thing. And, and that's how you prove that you really care for your black brothers and sisters. On the basis of the character and the holiness of God, nobody's asking you to sacrifice orthodoxy that's right. to fight for justice. Amen. Hold on to the fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Hold on to the fact that we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hold on to the fact that there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to shun. Hold on to the fact that we ought to walk uprightly. But because of that, we refuse to accept injustice against the marginalized. Now, some of the things he mentions here, I mean, I, obviously, it's pretty general. I don't disagree with, you know, there's a, there's a heaven, there's a hell to be shunned, he said. There's... Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, uh, a, a lot of the liberation theologians can even affirm this stuff, but they mean different things by it. So, so I don't know exactly where Charlie Dates is on all of this. I do know, though, that's been the tempting thing for Christians really since the 60s, 70s, when I uh, the era I wrote about in Social Justice Goes to Church. It's this idea that you can hold on to your orthodoxy because because let's face it, you lose it so easily when you go down this path. You know, you can look at the main lines for that, but uh, in fact, my dad and I were talking this morning uh, about just kind of like the North and the South, and especially the Northeast is basically godless at this point. They're pagan. They're pagan. Churchless. Un unchurched, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming like unreached people status. And in the South, you still have all these churches and people in Christianity, but it's becoming so heretical. So you have a semblance of Christianity, but it's heretical. And if you turn the clock back 100 years, you would have said, well, the North and the South both have, you know, churches and stuff. But the North was was more heretical, at least I'm not saying across the board, every, you know, but in general, I'm saying. And there is this like uh, this progression that takes place. It's not like regions go from we're just saturated in Christianity with blue laws to now we're pagan overnight. 
it does take a little time and there are these gradual stages in between and there is usually a kind of apostasy and you know churches that people are still meeting there but they don't actually love the lord they don't follow his word it's not really a church it's a social club it's something else and and that's what we've seen in our country and uh when people go down this road of, of paganism the social justice is mixed in with that it, uh it's uh, social justice is really becoming, broadly speaking, a religion in and of itself. That's the premise of my second book on social justice, uh, Christianity and social justice. And so the churches that adopt this end up syncretizing and they end up going heretical eventually. So that's why Charlie Dates has to say this, because that's the association. People think that, OK, you're going to have a rainbow flag outside your church and you're going to. I mean, it's funny. He didn't use that example. He didn't say, like, you can hold on to biblical gender roles or something. He he used other stuff. But uh, but, you know, eventually you are going to deny the Trinity or I'll redefine it. Really, that's usually what they do. They redefine it or something. So uh, this has been the, the temptation that you can keep your theology and just go socially left. And the evidence shows that you really can't that um, over time, if you go socially left, it's going to pull your theology with you. So that's Charlie Dates at Moody. And, you know, I'm sorry for those who, like uh, John Senny, who say, I'm so disheartened by the direction of my school Moody has gone. I'm sorry for all the Moody folks who are uh, watching this. Um, and uh, Andrew asks, wow, does this include Paul or Jesus? Didn't the left always treat the render unto Caesar? Even the right would want to introduce social politics. I'm not exactly sure what you're asking in the last section there, but I, I think I understand with the uh, Paul and Jesus. Yeah. I mean, did they not fight enough for, for their, uh, for the gospel? Did they not really believe that God is who he said he was uh, because they weren't doing a social justice thing? Yeah. And, and um, Pastor Michael asks, who is this guy? Yeah. Charlie Dates. Charlie Dates is who it is. So you can look him up. Uh, I've talked about him before. All right. So, um, so that's number one. Uh, the second thing I wanted to talk about on the podcast is uh, it's a point I've made many times, but I figure we'll make it one more time. How's that? Because there's been a bunch of things this week that kind of uh, point in this direction. And it's getting silly at this point. And, and of course, I'm talking about this this whole debate over, quote unquote, Christian nationalism. This was a clip on MSNBC from earlier this week that unites all of them because there's many different groups orbiting trump but the thing that unites them as christian nationalists not christians by the way because christian nationalists is very different mm -hmm. is that they believe that our rights as americans as all human beings don't come from any earthly authority they don't come from congress they don't come from the supreme court they come from god the wow <laughs> so uh Man, uh, it, it's really broad at this point. I mean, it's beyond just Christians. I guess, you know, if you just believe your our rights come from God, then that makes you a Christian nationalist. Thomas Jefferson all of a sudden became a Christian nationalist, right? And and this is something that from the beginning, from like, you know, 2020, when this started really uh, being talked about more in mainstream media, I've said this, I know others have said this, all this is, is an attempt to spread a wide net around all Christians who would want to be influential in the government. I mean, this net is even wider than that, though. This isn't even just Christians. If you just believe our rights come from God, then uh, then you're, you're a Christian nationalist, according to this uh, panel on MSNBC. And there's a movie right now out. I haven't actually watched it, but I've, I read the book and did a review of the Power Worshippers, but the movie's God and Country. And from the people who have seen it, who tell, have talked about it, at least uh, online, uh, and told me about it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's it's this really wide net of like, if you're a Christian, you want to influence uh, society or government, then you're a Christian nationalist and you're someone who's very scary and to be feared. And so obviously everyone who wants to maintain a Christian witness publicly is going to get this title, going to get this label. You can't really avoid it. And, and I think that's important to, to note. Uh, yeah, there's some people out there that I, I've even had some of them on the podcast, like Stephen Wolf. There's really, I'm like, who else is there? Stephen Wolf, I guess Andrew Torva wrote a book that talks about Christian nationalism and Andrew Risker. But okay, so th those guys have taken it positively and then um, they've taken their own ideas about politically about uh, and, and socially 
and they've kind of used the banner of Christian nationalism to represent those. But but th this whole thing predates them, and it's just been a smear the media's used. And so Christians, um, <laughs> Christians predictably, uh, many of them at least, want to somehow still create all this space as if it's going to help them. I, I don't, I really don't get it. Like they want to distance themselves from it still and say like, you know, just like we saw, we saw in that clip of, from MSNBC, it's not Christians, Christian nationalists, not the Christians. They're okay. And, and, and so a lot of Christians want to be like, I want to be in that category so bad, the Christians category, not the Christian nationalist category, which is impossible. You can't, if, if you're going to be a serious Christian, you really, there's no way for you to win that, but they're still trying to do it. So uh, there's been a, a bunch of uh, pieces on this. Let me um, give you, let, let me show you one of them, if I may. Uh, this is from Mere Orthodoxy, Mere Orthodoxy, and uh, it's a a piece uh, in or no, sorry, not Mere, isn't no Pathios. My bad, Pathios. Why did I get those confused? All right, Christian nationalism as folk religion by Roger Olson, February twenty third, twenty twenty four. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me give you the gist of it. Um, one of the most influential articles I read was by sociologist of religion Robert Elwood who I got to know personally later. It was about Christianity's down-home turn. Right now, I don't remember where it was published, but I cut out the article and kept it. Um, he goes on, he talks about what folk religion is, anti-intellectual, ahistorical. And then, of course, within the second paragraph, the religion of Germany in the 1930s and early 1940s was the national socialist idea of Ger Ger uh, Germania and Aryan race. And it's these people cannot, like they have like two categories, you know, and one of them is Nazis. They, they just can't even like write without somehow referencing the Nazis somehow. So um, the rest of the article goes as predictably as you would imagine. And again, this is, you know, supposedly this is a Christian website and this is a, uh, an author who, who thinks they're Christian. And um, he says the problem, of course, is that almost every American Christian nationalist will deny that their nationalism is religious. And reject any claim that it borders on idolatry or is, or, or is a folk religion rather than biblical orthodox. But one has to pay attention to their rhetoric about America and their actions and placing American patriotism above even commitment to Jesus and the church. Or they mix and mingle, blend their patriotism with their commitment to Jesus and the church inappropriately. Jesus is Lord and America is God's chosen country to save the world are placed on an equal plane and mixed together to the point that, all right, so he's talking about certain uh, self-professed Christians out there who, and, and, you, and I know who he's talking about. It's, I mean, it's the cartoony, really goofy ones who uh, really have bought into a cartoon of America that it's basically like Israel and America's God's chosen nation now. Uh, and, and because of that, um, it, it's going to survive forever. It's perpetual. It's never going to go away and we need to fight for it. And it's, uh, uh, and, and it, they, they merge, they mingle things. Okay. I'm not going to say that th those people don't exist at all. I don't think they're as influential as the left wants to make out, but, but again, th the point of, of me, uh, reading this or showing you this is that you, you don't miss the attempt being made here. The attempt is to quarter off Christian nationalism to it's those guys. It's the crazy uncles over there. That's what it is. You know, that, and, and of course, the media is not using the term that way. The media never use the term to just mean that. They may mean those people, but they mean more than that. They mean you and me. And so when Christians try to do this thing where they quarter off Christian nationalism to it's those guys, it's not us, then what they do is they uh, effectively keep the vilification of the term and the people associate associated with it going. They do the media, they carry the media's water. They agree with the media. They come alongside the media and say, oh yeah, those Christian nationalists are really bad, but it's really these guys. They go after them. It's them, not us. And th this is the same thing that we saw. I feel like I'm replaying history here a bit. Uh, and it's not even old ancient history. It's recent. It's the same kind of thing we saw in 2020. And before that, a bit uh, with Christians trying to be like, hey, I know that there's racist evangelicals out there, according to the media. And I know there's these sexist evangelicals out there, these misogynists. It's those guys, though. Go after them. It's not us. You know, we're the good Christians. 
And uh, Russell Moore, of course, has done this shtick for a long time. It doesn't work, though. Long, It just doesn't work. It ends up, you, you end up actually infiltrating your own people because your own people now are like, you know, thinking, okay, the media is reporting accurately on this. There is this big threat. And, and, and they just end up thinking that, uh, you know, they, they end up getting confused. The, the water just gets muddy. Um, you know, why not just say, hey, let's fight the media. Media is trying to make us look like we're this scary. Christians are scary because they think something like, well, our rights come from God. And that's scary. Let's talk about that. Is that scary? Why is that scary? Uh, what if our rights don't actually come from God? What does that mean? That's scary to me, right? We're not doing that. Instead, we're 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 looking at, and I say we loosely. I'm saying, you know, people with platforms in evangelical circles. They maybe I'll say that. Uh, see, now I got to make the division. <laughs> okay, well, we we'll go back to we. You know, we look at what the media is doing, and we see power. We see the ability to punish, and we're afraid. And and I think it's just a, a lack of fear of God. I think that's what drives this kind of thing. And so we want to somehow get in their corner have them on our side. And if they can be weaponized against other Christians, that's okay as long as they're not coming to our house. So my two cents, I've made this point, I, I don't know how many times, but I'm it merits, you know, making the point again. Uh, okay, so let's see. Not many questions coming in, but, but uh, many comments. Uh, would, <laughs> Anita Smith says, would these naysayers prefer Muslim nationalism Leftists, probably, yes. Well, yeah, they never go after that. Uh, and, and there's probably a myriad of reasons for it. Um, they, they see their political enemies as Christians, right? So that's why. They don't see Muslims as their political enemies. It's that simple. It's the friend-enemy distinction. It's that simple. Okay. Um, let's let's switch gears here a bit. I'm debating what we ought to talk. Oh, sorry. I can't switch gears. I forgot. There's a good piece on this whole topic. That I was going to let you know about. So let me let you know about that, and then we'll switch gears. So this is by Steve Dace. Uh, the debate is over. We're all Christian nationalists now. The debate is over. We're all Christian nationalists now. The Christian nationalism debate was always a scam, he says, which is why, as someone who, by God's grace, is one of the largest audiences of Bible-believing Christians in the country, I never bothered to wade into it. Instead, I waited for those provoking it to reveal their true purpose for doing so, and finally, it happened last week. So he, he talks about the clip that I just played. Um, he wraps up the piece. It's short. He says, if you are guilty of loving the Lord while also daring to show any respect whatsoever for actual American history, and that is all, uh, and that is still a lot of people who have various opinions about Donald Trump, then you are pronounced guilty by the very forces trying to destroy the last morsels of a country once called exceptional and no amount of nuance or ah shuckery can save you. And that's what he, he's talking about, what I was just talking about. The, you know, um, for the spirit of the age offers no forgiveness. It only demands your compliance. I assure you that every time you turn onto Tolerance Boulevard, you will find it is a one-way street. The debate that never was is now over. We are all Christian nationalists now. I agree. That was always the purpose of it. So, um, all right. That is, now we can switch gears. Now we can switch gears. Uh, let's talk about... What should we do first? Should we do the dancing stuff on Twitter or the IV? Let's do the IVF stuff. I don't think it'll it'll take me long. I mean, this isn't comprehensive. Um, just a few thoughts I, I want to share and, and also just preview, I guess give you a preview. I do plan at some point, um, not right this second, but I do plan on giving a much more comprehensive kind of direction on not just IVF, but fertility uh, treatments in general. And the reason for me is somewhat personal. When I started looking into that, this kind of thing, I'm going to be honest with you. I couldn't find any, and I'm not saying they don't exist, but I, at the time I could not find any good Christian resources on the topic. It's like, they don't exist. Uh, they're outdated. A lot of the information, um, they're, some of them are silly and, you know, some were decent, but it's just, it was incomplete. And so, so that is something that I want to get out there at some point to help people. That, that's my goal is to help people. Um, but let me just say a few things, because it is in the news. It is a moral issue. Christians are weighing in on it. And so I, I think that I sh probably should say something about it. Briefly speaking, as many of you know, in Alabama, uh, Supreme Court, essentially, uh, it, there, there was a case that came up where 
um, there was some um, some children. We're going to call them what they are. They're children, right? Uh, fertilized embryos, blastocysts that were in a freezer. And there was, and, and I don't know if the, I don't know what exactly what happened with the freezer, but they, they ended up, they died. And, and so this is a tragedy, right? And, um, and so they were liable in the case. And so you have three, at least three now, uh, IVF clinics, the biggest ones apparently in the state that are, until they get some clarification legally, they're just not doing IVF anymore because uh, it's, they, they don't know how to proceed apparently. So this has opened up a whole discussion in evangelicalism and beyond about IVF, the morality of IVF, what is permissible, what is not, um, that kind of thing. And there was um, what I would consider to be uh, a decent piece. Now I, I can't find it. I thought I had it pulled up. Give me a second. I will find this piece. Uh, there was a decent piece that was put out by Breakpoint. And yeah, here it is. And um, and, and and it's it's pretty short. It's actually very short. There's a an interview that accompanies it, or I guess it's a maybe it's a reading of it. It's like six minutes long. Um, and so I'm not endorsing everything Breakpoint. I'm not. I'm certainly not endorsing everything John Stone Street. There's things he said that I've disagreed with in the past. But, you know, it seems like this is somewhat, in my opinion, of a balanced take. He says um, a decision by the so he talks about what we just talked about the this case. He said um, the panic, uh, which has been typical uh, of the media coverage about the decision, makes sense, given that the court finally addressed the central question of IVF, a question that the IVF industry has largely depended upon not being answered in order to grow and expand. He's absolutely right. Specifically, the court's decision has only put a certain kind of fertility called in limb care in limbo fertility care that involves the creating, storing, preserving, and destroying of human embryos. That is key. Let me read that again. The only thing this has affected, even though there's been a media frenzy saying this ends all IVF and, and all, you know, assisted uh, reproduction technologies and so forth. It doesn't. This is what it actually specifically addresses. Fertility care that involves the creating, storing, preserving, and destroying, big flashing, destroying on that word, of human embryos. Asking the question, what are they, was long overdue, given that approximately 1.5 million embryos left over from IVF services are currently stored in freezers in the United States, and which is, is, is crazy. It's crazy, okay? The vast majority of which are destined for either destruction or donation for medical testing. Um, I mean, this is a travesty. There's no doubt about it. Even if late incoming pro-lifers have been right to celebrate this small bit of ethical clarity for an industry with little of it, um, even if late incoming, sorry, I read that wrong, pro-lifers have been right. During IVF, eggs are fertilized with sperm in a lab. Often multiple embryos are created and tested for viability. So, so it just explains the process of IVF. Uh, pro-lifers are right to celebrate the court's uh, recognition of the humanity of these embryos. Um, it says, though, at the same time, the decision fails to answer another question. If an embryo must be considered a child, if destroyed by accident, what about when it is cr created, stored in a freezer, and destroyed intentionally? The three couples involved in the Alabama case wish to hold the clinic responsible for the loss of their embryonic children. But as the court's opinion plainly states, the uh, Fondes elected, uh, in the, this is the family, in their contract with the center to automatically destroy any embryos that had remained frozen longer than five years. The LePages chose to donate similar embryos to medical researchers whose project would result in the destruction of the embryos. And another family agreed to allow any abnormal embryos created through IVF to be experimented on for research purposes and then discarded. Their ruling creates or reveals a legal contradiction similar to that which exists in states with both abortion rights and double homicide laws. If a pregnant woman and her preborn baby are killed, the perpetrators can be charged with two counts of homicide. Yet, if that same woman escaped an assault and drove to an abortion clinic the same day, there would be no charge of homicide, legally speaking. In the Alabama case, the court established that the moral nature of an embryo gives it the same legal protections as a born human under the state's wrongful death status uh, statute. Why then should the same embryo not be afforded protection from imprisonment, trafficking, experimentation, and eventual destruction? So it doesn't go far enough. <laughs> Strictly speaking, IVF can be done in a way that does not lead to the creation of excess embryos. Uh, and then it talks about that. 
Um, and some of these embryos may be implanted, but most will not. So it, it just talks about that. So let me let me just briefly say this um, about this whole issue since, you know, and I'll probably just make make people who are hardcore on either side mad at me because <laughs> I I'm not giving myself the time to, you know, go down every rabbit hole here. Um, but essentially, you know, what you have with IVF is you you have, um, you know, like like other medical procedures where you have uh, the human body being affected by the fall, things aren't working properly. And the normal process of uh, fertilization that takes place in the womb isn't happening for whatever reason. It could be the husband, it could be the wife, it could be both. And there is a way to fertilize an embryo by taking sperm from the man, taking uh, a, a woman's um, eggs, uh, harvesting the eggs. So you have to go through, there's a surgical procedure here and you can take them and then you can, the procedure can be done in a lab. Uh, usually it's a, um, uh, an ichthys, they, they call it, but it's a procedure where they, they will take and actually inject into the egg a sperm. And uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, there's, there's other ways of doing it, but that's, that's a, a common way today. And then it is implanted again in the womb in the, in the wife's womb. And so then the, the wife, uh, continues, uh, and is, is pregnant, right? Uh, or if it doesn't implant, you know, they're, they're not. And of course, of course there's risk to this. Uh, a lot of, a lot of clinics will freeze the embryos anyway. So, some clinics that's, that's just what they do because, uh, there's actually a higher percentage, uh, generally speaking of fertilized embryos of humans that will implant and come to term um, if you wait the month after the eggs are harvested, because oftentimes uh, the, the surgical procedure, it, uh, there, there's, there could be damage from that. It's kind of, a, it's a traumatic thing. And so when you let the, the, the body calm down a month, then, uh, and freeze the uh, fertilized embryo, the human, then uh, it, it's a safer, it, it's a more of a chance that the embryo, that the fertilized embryo will actually implant, right? So, so along the way, and I've just given you such a, a thumb sketch, there's so many more things, but, but along the way in this whole process, there's a number of moral dilemmas that come up. So one of them is how the sperm is collected, okay? Um, is it uh, a man alone or is it a husband and wife in a, uh, a, more, a godly relationship? All right. So that that's that's a moral crossroads right there. Um, another issue that comes up is, uh, is it permissible to freeze uh, uh, fertilized embryos? Is there a risk in the default that they won't make it? Are you putting these these little lives at risk? So that's an that's another issue. Now, it's like 95 to 99 percent, depending on the clinic. Um, and like I just said, um, many of them uh, now think that it's actually a higher chance if they freeze it than if they don't. If you don't, though, you do a fresh transfer. Um, now, this isn't as much perhaps of a moral dilemma. It, it could be, I suppose. But uh, do you um, do do you does the the woman in the situation, the wife, does she uh, take hormones that are going to make her produce a lot of eggs? And then, how many of those eggs? This is the moral issue. Uh, are do you attempt to fertilize? And so you don't. You know, if you if you go through this process, you're, you're a couple that uh, has fertility issues or whatever, and this is you end up here. You've tried, you know, the other <laughs> drugs and IUIs and whatever else, and and this is where you end up. Um, then th th there there is a decision you have to make about that. Uh, you don't have to do that though. You can just harvest whatever you're naturally one egg, you know, and and you can do a fresh transfer. So you don't have to do those things. It's still IVF. And then here's the biggest moral question of all, which this case at least hits on a little bit. Do you discard the embryos, the fertilized embryos? These are humans, again, that you do not use. That's obviously, of all the questions, that's the clearest one for a Christian to answer. Of course you don't, because that they're human. And this is what uh, IVF, the, the IVF procedures have unfortunately um, produced in our country and in many other countries, freezers full of human beings that have no hope of 
ever being implanted in the womb of the mother. And, and now Christians can do embryo adoption, which is a wonderful thing. But um, there are countries that regulate this kind of thing, like uh, Italy, a Roman Catholic country. They, they regulate uh, IVF. Uh, even uh, as I understand it, the, the amount of um, eggs that can be uh, fertilized. So, so, th so the question for Christians is, and I just gave you a bunch of questions to think through, but the question is, what do you do with IVF? There are people who right now are taking this opportunity to try to say that, you know, no reproductive technology at all, right? It's all bad. And, 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 and of course, you know, generally citing the most egregious examples. Um, there's other Christians who think it should be regulated. Uh, you, it, there's a way, there's a moral way to proceed here, but it needs to be regulated appropriately. Um, and, and then there's a range of answers to how should it be regulated? So that's the issue. Uh, those are the issues, uh, broadly speaking. There's more that you could probably talk about. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's other, there's always other stuff, but, but those are the major things. And so um, I'm more here just to kind of let, to educate you, to let people know who don't know this, what these debates are actually over. So you are better informed uh, in the discussions that you have. Uh, and one of the things that I've noticed is that um, pastors even are ill-equipped oftentimes on this issue because it's such a new issue. And so they've end, sometimes end up giving good pastors even very bad advice on this kind of thing. And, uh, and people will punt it to the doctors. Yes, there's good things that good advice to ask the doctors, you know, for, but there are moral questions here that yes, as a pastor, you are more than qualified, uh, to navigate. So, um, that's my little encouragement, uh, there. Um, all right, well, let's, let's go to, I think the, the last but not least, <laughs> you know, I gotta say this next issue, these TikTok dancers, I've wondered about whether I should even like. Like, am I degrading the podcast by even talking about this? I've wondered this. <laughs> is this worth our time? Am I giving into clown world? And I, I kind of have to talk about it because I, I put a few posts out there about it. And, um, and, and I actually, I, uh, on Twitter, really, I don't know if I, I think, yeah, it's just on Twitter. But two of them I ended up deleting. And I'm going to tell you why I ended up deleting them. Uh, in a moment, but, uh, but I, I feel like I waited, I weighed in a little bit, so I have to commit now I'm committed. We'll talk about it. And I suppose, I suppose there's behind this, behind the, the issue of dancing on TikTok or Twitter or wherever, there is a bigger moral question that parents especially, uh, do need to think about with their kids. And, um, we are so influenced by trash world and, the degeneracy around us, it can dull our senses. And, and I think um, AD actually put out a video on this uh, right before I started recording. And I think he's 100% right that we don't even realize to what extent we are influenced by what's around us sometimes. And I'm, I think I'm no, no exception to that. I you know obviously try my best to think through things and not be influenced. But look, uh, it's just the water we swim in. So admitting that uh, from the beginning. But uh, let, let's start with the issue, and then I want to uh, look at some scripture with you, uh, if we may. So, as far as I can tell, this whole issue started with uh, someone who we talked about not too long ago, Allie Beth Stuckey. <laughs> uh, I'm not intentionally trying to bring her up again. It's just uh, um, just the way it is. So, um, she... She posted, or yeah, she retweeted this guy, Chase Austin. And Chase posted this video. Um, you can kind of see it. And uh, it's, you know, it's girls, young girls. They're, they're probably like sorority aged. Maybe some of them are a little younger. I don't know. But they're, I mean, they're young women. Uh, but they're they're dancing at a, a gas station in New Orleans, I guess, right? So So this is what you get. And, um, and, and Chase Austin says, why don't men want Western women? And of course he's the, the answer is the video. <laughs> this is why men don't tend to want Western women. And, and I'm presuming here it's, it's for lifelong commitment. It's marriage. He's talking about marriage. You know, why don't men, uh, want to commit themselves to girls like this? 
And so Ali Stuckey says this of all the reasons girls dancing with backpacks on is the reason men don't want women in the West. Okay. Then so kind of, you know, trying to kind of throw some shade at chase Austin here. I don't know what the backpacks has to do with anything. Uh, a lot of them have backpacks. A lot of them have these Stanley cups. I don't know what that has to do with anything really. Maybe, I, I don't know <laughs> materialism. I don't know where she's getting this, but, but that's, uh, how she kind of like reduce it makes it sound ridiculous. Like, you know, Chase Austin has a problem with girls with backpacks dancing or something. And that wasn't all. Um, you know, she said, she followed up. She said, also, I find this post to be a bit of a cope. Of course, you're not obligated to be attracted to any of these women. You can even find this silly or repulsive, but this is how sorority girls act together. And I'm going to shock you but most sorority girls don't have a problem with finding a guy who's interested in them. And of course this just sparked so much. I mean, people saying, yeah, of course there's guys interested in, in, in girls like this, but not, you know, it, it's not for marriage. <laughs> right. Um, you have uh, this guy named Peter Hargrave said, yeah, I'm not interested in this. The fact uh, women on Twitter don't find this insufferable shows the difference between men and women. And then Ali Stuckey says, I mean, it's not for you. They're dancing with each other. They're not dancing for men. Now, th there's there's more that could be said. But but that last comment I want to highlight just to give Ali a bit of a benefit of, a, of the doubt here, okay? She doesn't think they're dancing for men. Now, I, I made a mistake when I, uh, a, a slight mistake. I mean, I stand by 95% of everything I've said on this, but... I made a slight mistake when I first weighed in. And the reason I made a slight mistake was because I, I kind of assumed the same thing Allie did, that these are these are girls that are just, they're goofing off. They're having fun. It's nonsense. And um, and so I, I went with that. I said uh, that, yeah, some of them are dressed immodestly and some of the moves, you know, I, I don't consider that appropriate. I wouldn't want, if I had a daughter, I wouldn't want her doing that. But, you know, I, I'm not going to broad brush the whole thing. There's girls there that that are more modest and, you know, they're not, uh, they're, they're not going like, um, it's not sexual necessarily some, and I'm saying some of them. So I, I, I just see this as like, you know, this is just people that are dancing together and they're just goofing off and, uh, and yeah, maybe some are more sensual than others, but, uh, that is before I listened to the lyrics. <laughs> I, for a whole day, I was weighing in on this thing, having my volume like way down and I didn't hear what was going on which, uh, you know, generally on a podcast, I would be more careful, but on Twitter, you can just pop off. And that's kind of what I did. And I think that might be what Allie did. And I think that might be what some of the others did. I'm not saying that explains all the, the arguments surrounding this, but if you listen to the lyrics, it's some kind of like hip hop song and they're saying things, I, I don't remember verbatim, but they're saying things, you know, like, uh, shake it for the camera. And, uh, shake it for your boy. So Ali's saying, oh, these girls, they're not doing it for men. Some of them are singing this. Many of them are singing this as they're doing it. Shake it for your boy. Shake it for the camera. And they're, and they're shaking their, their bodies, <laughs> parts of their body, I guess. Um, they're doing it for someone, guys. And they're doing it for the camera. And their own words condemn them on this. They're, they're, Boy is still a male uh, term, I think. <laughs> there, there, there is a sense in which, you know, this, this is for men. And there are men there uh, who are not participating in the dance, but they're, they're surrounding whatever party this is, watching and so forth. So this is the benefit of the doubt that I want to give to Allie and others who weighed in and, and thought like, you know, uh, silly, but, you know, it's it's not necessarily like, like get, don't get too worked up about it. I don't know how many of them actually listen to what is being said here and what many of these girls are actually singing, because if you listen to it, you'll have, I think, a different perspective. So that is number one. I wanted to get that out of the way and say that um, number two, uh, I want to defend the original tweet here because I think the, the guy who posted it is spot on. This is not a snapshot in the life of a young woman. I don't think as far like I, I don't think that many of the people who are so offended by this and are saying like, hey, in general, men don't want Western women because of this. I don't think they're making a statement that 
if a woman ends up goofing off by dancing in a silly way at some point, then, you know, they're just uh, not attractive at all or something. I think there's something bigger here because he's making a sweeping statement about Western civilization. He's talking about a pattern. He's saying that this is what women in the West are characterized by. So it's not like a snapshot. It's not a one-time deal. This is just the way that young women now, and, and I'm, I'm going to include young men because there's a lot of frivolity with young men as well, but their lives surround, are, 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 uh, are orbiting and, and surrounded by having fun, temporal pleasure, goofing off, silliness, extended adolescence, and a man who's looking for a wife or a woman who's looking for a husband who's serious about these kinds of things, who has a higher purpose, who's preparing themselves for marriage and family, they're not going to be interested in that if that's who you are. All right. So I'm not saying you can't ever goof off and have fun or anything like that. I'm saying, though, if that's what characterizes you and, and especially as a as a woman, you're still kind of engaging in, in, in childish things uh, as a general habit. That's the thing that's not attractive. And that's the thing that I think characterizes the West. And that's the thing that does not characterize many non-Western societies and pre-modern societies. Uh, there's more of a seriousness. There's more of a focus. And this is why I posted some uh, dancing uh, from, you know, one was a ballet. I actually specifically posted that one, retweeted it because there was a ballet dancer. And of course she, she you know, she had a dress on, but there was, a, I guess, is it, you know, stockings or whatever there's there's was some tight clothes there but it wasn't there wasn't you, you couldn't accuse her of being sensual there's nothing about it that you could say this is sensual there was form in it there was a story that was being told in it there was culture in it it was rich it was dignified it wasn't there wasn't even a hint of sexuality in it right and it took skill which is what this these girls dancing it, it, it takes no skill to do what they're doing Right. Um, it's, you know, I, I think of other folk traditions in dancing. I actually think dancing is great. And I think uh, I'm terrible at it, but I think that cultures actually may even need dancing. They need art forms. Uh, I was at an Irish festival last year and I got to see all these young girls, mostly uh, young girls who were doing Irish step dancing. There's nothing sensual about it. Uh, not even there's not a hint of it. It is. It takes skill. And it's beautiful. And oftentimes it, it does tell a story. It does say something about, uh, you know, a, a certain cultural touchstone or, um, you know, or, or it's just feeling. But it's it, it's not what you just saw. What you just saw at best, I think, is just goofing off. And at worst, given the lyrics uh, and given the way some of the girls are moving and how they're dressed, it's sensual. So. That's why I think it's spot on. That that is a it's a good point. Now, <laughs> Allie, um, in the last podcast or two podcasts ago, whenever we talked about it, it was like last week. She was kind of throwing some shade at the trad wife movement because hey, it's not biblical. It's uh, you know baking sourdough is great, but don't don't put pressure on yourself. And then she kind of held herself up as an example of like I've got this career, I've got my husband, I got my family along with me. You can have it all. You can have both of these things. Um, and, and that's fine. You know, that that's her. I, I don't know much about her personal life, but she 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 saw a problem with the trad wife movement with uh, baking your own bread, staying home and, and holding that up as like a standard, I guess. And it's just it's weird to me, like a week later, this gets downplayed. And so a lot of people are pointing this out. And I, I, I don't know. I don't really have a lot to say other than I think that the trad wife movement for all its flaws for for whatever low bar it is right there's something positive in it that there is a higher purpose women have a calling to be wives and mothers and um and, and some women obviously they're, they're going to be single but you know and they have they have a calling if you have the gift of singleness you have a calling and but but either way there's a higher calling there there's something more to live for than frivolity that's what the trad wife movement gives you. It may not be Christian totally, you know, it may not uh, go as far as it needs to go. It may, right. It's just, it's just really one basic thing. That, that's my understanding at least. And yeah, it could be damaging if people 
obsess over it, take it too far and think that they're better than others because they're trad wise. Right? Yeah, of course that's all bad because that's pride. That's another issue. Um, but what you just saw, the dancing you just saw, that's not good for society. It's hormone culture. There's, there's really not like a rich anything to it. There's not a higher purpose to it. There's not skill. There's not, it, it doesn't prepare you really for anything. It doesn't signal anything necessarily. It, it's at, at, on its best day. It's silly. So I, I'm not, I don't want to like be like uh, too. I know that there's some guys uh, on there that are just like, you know, making out like this is pornography or something. I'm not saying that, but it's, it's degrading. It's not good for society if that becomes the common thing. And, and I, I will say, I think at weddings, uh, and, and maybe I'm in a part of the country that has more of this. I think in other parts, I went to a wedding in the Midwest. It wasn't as much like this, but in the area where I live, it's kind of expected at weddings that there's going to be a lot of dancing. And that dancing tends to be, um, it, it tends to not take much skill at all. It's just, it's just moving. It's just, and it's silly. And I'm not saying it's all wrong, but I, I am saying this, I think if that is what the dancing art form is reduced to just a boom, boom, bass beat and just, you know, jumping and you can't even talk to each other. You can't even hear each other. It's just, Hey, try to move your body with the music and, and, and melody isn't even important anymore. It's just a beat. There's a degrading influence there on, on a culture, on a society. And I, I know, uh, you know, I was married. Uh, so <laughs> some people wonder how, I wonder how sometimes, but I was married and, you know, my wife, um, had some, uh, she had some, some, some more tasteful in my opinion, uh, songs and, and there was some dancing at the wedding. I remember though, before we, we got married, I had this one request for the dancing and I, and I'm not a dancer at all, but I said, could we try to do the Virginia reel? <laughs> could we try? And it takes skill and, you know, men know their part. Women know their part. They, it, it, there's, there's no question about what you're going to do next. It, there's order to it. It's dignified. And we tried and it was kind of, eh, some people kind of got the hang of it. I wasn't one of them. Didn't go that well. <laughs> um, you know, English country dancing, which is what the Virginia reel is basically. That's, I, I think that's a superior art form. I do think there is, there's elements of subjectivity and objectivity with art. Just go watch like Roger Scruton's uh, documentary. Uh, on art, uh, why beauty matters. And, you know, don't tell me there's not some kind of objectivity in art. You know, the painting of a toilet is inferior, you know, to a complicated painting of a beautiful woman like the Mona Lisa. There, it, architecture is the same way. And I think there's, there's no exception in dance. I don't know where all those lines are, but I know I sense them more than I can articulate them. And I'm sensing them uh, with this. So that's my opinion on it. Um, Am I, you know, personally offended? Yeah, when I heard when I heard the lyrics, I guess I, I am offended by by that, but not not to the point like I'm not, you know, not trying to cancel it. I'm not, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I'm not like uh, spending any time thinking about it, you know, um, and, I, and I do want people to be able to dance and goof off and have a fun time and stuff. But there is something going on with our culture. It is getting degraded. That is just one little evidence of it. The, the fact that that's normalized. And uh, I think that's worth, I think that's worth saying. So um, I probably could say more. I'm not going to please everyone on this, but those are my thoughts on uh, that particular subject. I want to end uh, with, I'll get to some questions, but I want to end uh, with um, talking about this. First Timothy chapter uh, two. I think that I, close my tab unfortunately i don't know why i did that uh first timothy 2 um and i guess we'll go to verse 9 paul says this this is for christians but it says likewise i want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, many of you don't know that, uh, I shouldn't say many of you, many of us don't remember perhaps, 
that the admonition that you know women can't be pastors, they can't teach, is preceded by these general statements about how women ought to carry themselves. And if this gets you canceled for being misogynistic, supposedly, then you know, so be it. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says. And he references creation right after this. This isn't like, you know, specific to a, a culture. There, there's bigger things going on here. Um, it, it, it's the emphasis is spiritual. The emphasis is a woman ought to be, uh, to adorn themselves. They ought to be known. They ought to be seen as a dignified person modestly discreetly um th th this is uh I, I think in the king james uh it says shame guiltiness so basically have you, you have a sense of shame still you haven't lost that sense of shame that's what it's saying but paul's saying that hey don't be like the pagans out there who lost their sense of shame they don't have it it doesn't work it's broken they're not embarrassed you know they're they're willing to, to show any part of their body there's no shame um, no, you need to have a sense of shame still. And that's going to show itself in the clothing that you wear. It's going to be modest. It's going to be discreet. Um, the emphasis isn't going to be the braided hair, the gold, the pearls, or costly garments. It doesn't mean those things are necessarily wrong, by the way. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's a sin to have to braid your hair. Um, that it's just that's not the emphasis of how you ought to adorn yourself. You, it, rather, it should be good works proper uh it's proper for women to uh, making a claim to godliness to have good works uh to have a quiet gentle spirit uh, uh, uh to re receive instruction with entire submissiveness so there's a trusting uh that women have a, a a not micromanaging like many of the feminists say a woman ought to behave and so um you know this word uh discreetly here is actually used in the very next chapter, I believe, in uh, the qualifications for an elder, when it talks about um, being uh, essentially, you know, not not being drunk, not being not letting alcohol take over, you know, it's the same kind of thing that Paul's talking about in First Timothy chapter two when it comes to women. Uh, not being a wild woman, not being out of control. Okay. So hopefully people understand what he's saying here. Doesn't mean that women can, can't be ever be silly or have fun. Not what he's saying. He's not a killjoy here, but he's saying what should characterize a woman? Well, there should be a sense of shame. And really it's a sense of respect, respect the body God gave you. Um, it should be a, a sense of control that you're you're not just being coming wild and giving yourself to any, every impulse. There needs to be self-control there. And it should be your character that shines brighter than any pearls or costly garments or braided hair. So now the question becomes, if someone is characterized by silly dancing, I'm not saying they, they do it occasionally, but if they're characterized by just really goofing off. And especially with, with lyrics that are not appropriate and that kind of thing. Does it match this? That's really the question that I want to uh, leave you with. So I hope that helps you think about it <laughs> in a biblical way and a uh, um, hopefully a, a way that's just, um, yeah, that's helpful. I mean, like, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's not, I don't think always, especially with art, it's hard to do this. It's not always black and white. It's not always in every circumstance, this kind of thing right here is wrong. But I think when you bring principles into it of what we ought to be striving for, these higher purposes, then you you pretty easily come to conclusions on those things. And so uh, so that's my my hope and my prayer uh, for all of you. Well, uh, let's get to some questions or statements. Man, there's a lot. I don't think I'm going to be able to get to all of them. Uh, but let me just highlight uh, a few. Uh, Doug asks, does a good desire to have babies justify the killing of embryos in IVF? Does a woman have a right to a baby? Answer, no. Uh, yeah, uh, you no, know, <laughs> no, I'm, that's, I'm agreeing. No, uh, there is no justification for killing any humans uh, just because a woman wants a baby. I just hope you understand, Doug, that there are Christian couples who go through this process and there are, uh, they're not killing um, any children in the process. Uh, they're they're doing it uh, in ethical ways. 
and so um so that was one of the things i was hoping that i i could at least let people know about because you get the impression uh by some christians that it's like that that's just what happens at ivf it's all surrogacy and uh killing um fertilized embryos that are humans and um and that's not the case but um Law and Worldview says, what are they trying to shake for the camera according to the song? Yeah, I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's it's the backside of their bodies. Uh, that's that, my assumption. Um, so it's it's a singular it, shake it. So I don't know. That, that maybe, it, unless there's something else, but I, I, I'm not going to venture there. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> some people have opinions about sorority girls. Um, what is the Virginia reel? Go look it up. Go type in Virginia reel on, uh, on, I guess YouTube and you'll come up with videos of it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, if you, if you watch those like old Jane Austen movies and they're dancing, like how many social things happen at those? Like it gives, it's actually great because it gives men and women a place where they can actually interact. There's accountability. Uh, they, um, are able to uh, impress the others, or at least you know, show that you, you. It reveals a lot about you the way that you dance and the way that you approach it, right? So, so you get to reveal some of your character. Uh, there's rules and lanes, so you're not actually confused about what you should do. Um, I actually think that there's we should bring it back. That's what we should do. Hey, if Christians want to get involved in the dancing scene. I think we should bring that stuff back. That's just my two cents. Uh, <laughs> I and my families uh, did the polka <laughs> uh, because uh, the, uh, John traces back to Poland. Uh, that That's interesting. I'd love to see that. Um, the polka is something I'm not very familiar with. So uh, that's it for the comments. It's good to uh, be with everyone. And I'm looking forward to seeing some of you in person in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Just go to johnharrispodcast.com. You want to find out more? I will see you then. God bless. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.